0: Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the crisis of American sanity, which is allowing a criminal who only cares about himself, not the country, to rip the U.S. further apart and even provoke a civil war to stay out of jail. We'll look into why we are tolerating our own destruction as we slide into an authoritarian one-party state led by a pathetic man who can't accept defeat because that would make him a loser. So he is taking the country down with a large number of Americans helping as willing accomplices. Joining us is Dr. Alan Francis, a Professor Emeritus and former Chair of Psychiatry and Behavioral Science at Duke University. He is the author of the award-winning international bestseller, Saving Normal, and the reference work, Essentials of Psychiatric Diagnosis, and his latest book is Twilight of American Sanity, A Psychiatrist Analyzes the Age of Trump, now out in an updated paperback version. We will assess what can be done to save American democracy and society from Trump and the selfish and short-sighted plutocrats behind him who are exploiting phony populism, promoting stupidity, and propagating lies and disinformation to divide and turn Americans against each other. Then we'll examine the killing of the ISIS leader in Syria and get the latest news from Ukraine from a reporter who is a leading analyst of both theatres of war, Michael Weiss, the news director of New Lines magazine. He has reported on international affairs for over 10 years with a focus on the Middle East and Russia, having interviewed ISIS operatives and Russian spies, published and curated a series of still classified KGB training manuals, reported from rebel-held Syria and war-torn Ukraine, broken major stories about financial corruption, and exposed the Russian intelligence service's ongoing subversion efforts in the United States and Europe. The author of The Menace of Unreality, How Russia Weaponizes Information, Culture, and Money, and co-author of the New York Times bestseller, ISIS, Inside the Army of Terror, he just returned from Ukraine and joins us for an update on how Ukraine's leaders are calm about the threats from Russia, but annoyed by Biden's national security adviser and others who are trying to force them into swallowing the one-sided Minsk agreement. And before we begin today's program, I'd like to thank our growing number of listeners who have become subscribers to Background Briefing, making monthly donations to our nonprofit foundation at PublicTruthMedia.org, and thank you for keeping us on the air on a growing number of radio stations across the country and online as we continue to build a reality-based community in post-truth America at this critical time when we must engage fully in the political warfare battles underway as the next few years will decide the fate and future of American democracy itself. And joining us now is Dr. Alan Francis, who is a Professor Emeritus and former Chair of Psychiatry and Behavioral Science at Duke University. He's the author of the award-winning international bestseller, Saving Normal, and the reference works Essential of Psychiatric Diagnosis. And his latest book is Twilight of American Sanity, A Psychiatrist Analyzes the Age of Trump, now in an updated paperback version. Welcome to Background Briefing, Dr. Alan Francis. Well,
1: it's always a pleasure to be with you,
0: Ian. Well, thanks for joining us, and later in the program we'll be talking about the U.S. are killing the leader of ISIS in um, northern Syria. And, of course, the U.S. is sending troops to uh, Poland and Romania and Germany. And in general, we have a very powerful military that dominates the world. And we have something like 183 bases around the world. And we spend more money on defense than the next 10 countries in a, combined. And yet at, at home... We're very fragile, and what I find extraordinary and this relates to your book, The Twilight of American Sanity, is that I'm worried about America's sanity because this country is allowing a criminal who only cares about himself, not the country, to rip the U.S. further apart and even provoke a civil war to stay out of jail. So why are we tolerating our own destruction as we slide into this authoritarian one-party state led by this pathetic man who can't accept defeat because that would make him a loser. So he's taking the whole country down, along with a large number of Americans who are his willing accomplices. So is America's sanity here in question? Because it sure seems that way.
1: Well, it no longer seems to be in question. I think we're seeing the uh, vivid signs of insanity in, in everything from um, the support to Trump to the... Um, anti-vaxxer campaign, the conspiracy theories, the militias rising, the um, restrictions of voting rights. And to me, it's it's never been, since the Civil War, it's never been scary. America's always been an experiment. And after these 240 years, it seems like the experiment is is failing. And it's failing without much external stress, um, not much economic stress. It's falling apart from within. Now, how could an idiot like Trump convince so many people that he's the second coming is one of the great mysteries that I don't pretend to understand. But I think that one of the important things to realize is that he's a symbol. He's not the disease. He's a, he's a, a symptom and a symbol of the disease, but not the disease itself. It's, uh, the last uh, almost 60 years, ever since uh, Goldwater and the Southern Strategy and Uh, Nixon's pursuit of the evangelical Christian vote and the Southern white racist vote. Ever since the Republican Party sold its soul to the devil, these last 60 years have have witnessed a tremendous expenditure of money, um, brains, organizational skill, and and ruthlessness to um, distort the uh, truth, to um, convince the gullible, to... um, threaten the, those people who are willing to uh, stand up for democratic values. Um, it, it's at every level. It's at the school board level. We're experiencing that where I live in, in uh, San Diego. It's at the school board level, at, at every part of the country. The uh, school boards are, are now torn by uh, vicious divisiveness, um, political um, jockeying a uh, lack of concern for, for kids and a tremendous concern to further the goals of the Republican Party. It's happening in city council meetings and state assemblies. And this is really a coup. It's a, it's an anti-democratic coup. And the sad truth is it's succeeding. And Trump is the cheerleader of the coup. But I, I don't think he's solely responsible for it. It's a combination of a very gullible public, um, a propaganda very well-funded propaganda campaign on social media, talk radio, Fox News, and um, a power grab of the the billionaire class that that seems to be succeeding. And uh, unless the reasonable elements of, of, of the Republican Party, if any are left, unless the group of people who detest Trump realize that in supporting the Republican party at this point, they're supporting a a party that's going to lead to, to autocracy, not in the long run. This is something that's going to happen in the next decade, unless they realize that their, their fate and the fate of American democracy depends on renouncing Trump and fighting against him. um, I think we're going to see a, a disastrous midterm election, a disastrous 2024 election and a very, very quick, um, slippery slope fall into autocracy.
0: So, Dr. Francis, what happened then to the Republican Party? Why did it go from the Chamber of Commerce sort of centrism and people like Bob Dole? You know, it wasn't that long ago that Orrin Hatch, the conservative senator from Utah, was best friends with Teddy Kennedy in the Senate. So what happened to turn that party into a bunch of junkyard attack dogs?
1: Well, in the history here—it couldn't be clearer and fr- more frightening. Part one is the John Birch Society, which started in the 1950s. They—they they claimed that Eisenhower was a communist. Uh, they were at the radical extreme fringe. One of the 12 founders of the John Birch Society was the father of the Koch brothers. And what they have done with brilliance, with brilliance and ruthlessness is turn the nation's agenda to the stuff they learned at home from their father and from the John Birch Society. So William Buckley, who was the father of American conservatism, renounced the John Birch Society, said they were nuts, said that they were a disaster to the Republican Party and to the country. And now, he was about as conservative as anyone could have been in the 50s. Now that John Birch extremism is at the very heart, soul, and leadership of the Republican Party. And the other part was the deal that... um, happened after Lyndon Johnson passed the Voting Rights Act in 1965, that the Republicans, Nixon in particular, seized on this as a way of um, destroying what had been the Democratic Party in the South and played consciously and ruthlessly to the um, most radical elements of the uh, religious right, to the um, most white racist groups in the South. Uh, Ronald Reagan announced his candidacy, For the 1980 presidency, not far from three civil civil rights workers have been murdered in Mississippi. He was declaring that he was on the side of the white supremacists and against the people who've been fighting for civil rights. So the the Republican Party sold its soul to the devil and uh, actually purchased, you could see it as a uh, a kind of uh, free market purchase, purchased by the Koch brothers and other like-minded extremist billionaires. And we have to also realize that we have a very gullible public, that this is um, an example of a failure of public education, uh, that uh, many people are suffering, uh, undereducated, unable to deal with the technical uh, demands of this uh, modern world, that globalization, which seemed like such a, a fantastic opportunity for the United States 20 years ago, was our undoing. Don't get what you wish for. Uh, because it, it did lead, along with increased use of robotics and organization technology, it did lead to a uh, tremendous constriction in earning power for people without education and tremendous increase in inequality of, of uh, rich and poor in this country. And the sad news is I'm listening to a book now about the decline and fall of the Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire fell because of climate change, because of pestilence, and because of great inequality uh, between the richest and the poorest. Listening to how it fell in detail is uh, sort of like a day-to-day reading of today's newspaper and consideration of what's likely to happen to us in the future. We're repeating history. We're not making it. We're repeating history. There's empire's fall. It's usually tipped over the balance by climate change and pandemics, uh, by um, economic um, inequality and poverty. And everything that's happened now has happened repeatedly before, and only a miracle, only an overshoot on the part of Trump and his allies. Only if they become so ridiculously obvious in playing their hand, Uh, and only if uh, everyone who is right-minded and sensible in this country realizes that we are um, in grave grave danger, enough to, to take part and to get their friends to take part, and to act as if this is the most crucial moment in the history of American democracy, which it may well be. Um, If that doesn't happen, I fear for uh, our our children and our grandchildren and for the rest of the world. Everyone's looking at us in other countries wondering how we could be acting in such a foolish way and realizing if the United States comes apart, it will destroy um, efforts at, at pandemic control and climate control everywhere in the world. And the balance for our species now is in the hands of a very ruthless, uh, very ignorant, and, and very uh, selfish group of people who can bring the uh, House of Cards tumbling down.
0: And again, I'm speaking with Dr. Alan Francis. who's a Professor of Emeritus and former Chair of Psychiatry and Behavioral Science at Duke University. He's the author of the award-winning international bestseller, Saving Normal, and the reference work, Essentials of Psychiatric Diagnosis. And his latest book is Twilight of American Sanity, a psychiatrist analyzes the age of Trump now in an updated paperback version. So, you know, I do get mail from listeners saying, you know, stop the hand-wringing. What are we supposed to do? Well, you know, <laughs> I'm trying to find out what's happening. That's my job, to provide information to the public, not to necessarily have the answers, even though I'm looking for the answers. So, given this prognosis that the country's itself its own sanity is now in question, that the Marjorie Taylor Greens and the podcaster guy Joe Rogan, these are the faces of, the, of America now. And You mentioned the stupidity of the anti-vaxxers, who, of course, one of their most prominent ones is the Kennedy scion, uh, etc. So given that you can just see the stupidity before you, the anti-intellectualism, the hate, and you've got this cheerleader of it all who's making this comeback or never went away, Trump, uh, who's so clearly, even though he talks about America first, it's always been Trump first. And he's prepared to absolutely take the whole country down because he can't literally accept the fact that he's a loser. This is a sick man, but it's a sick country that is siding with him, at least a big chunk of it. So... What is the, You mentioned some of the countervailing forces. Is there any kind of catalytic way that we can get a wake-up call, that the better angels can emerge? You know, if the Democratic Party is, is as feckless as it appears to be with this juggernaut of voter suppression, which will give the Republicans a permanent control of a one-party state, is there a possibility of a popular uprising? You've given us the diagnosis, so what's the cure?
1: I don't think there'll ever be a a civil war or popular uprising because the um, the forces of darkness have all the guns and we'll we'll have a monopoly of state power if they succeed in in winning the elections. Uh, It's a very bleak picture. But as as Edmund Burke said um, um, 230 years ago, no man ever made a, a worse mistake doing nothing because he could only do little. And I think that at the local level, it's important that the school boards be protected, that the uh, Republican systematic effort to take over school boards, and they use the dirtiest tactics, uh, slurring um, opposing school board members, threatening them using internet, um, ganging up uh, procedures. But I think that good people have to run for school boards. Good people have to run for city councils. Good people have to support those who are running for school boards, city councils, state assemblies, state senates. Um, We have to get out to vote. No one's going to be convinced at this point. I think that it's not as if the anti-vaxxers are suddenly going to say, oh, grandma died and I I realize the error of my ways. We've done that experiment. We have almost a million people dead. And it hasn't changed minds. That the conspiracy theories are so embedded in people's um, minds and hearts that the truth, even if the truth means losing a loved one, doesn't seem to get to get home. The conspiracy theories find a, always find a new a new way of justifying what's completely self-destructive and selfish behavior. So people are not going to be convinced. I think it's a question of who gets to the polls. And even though the Republicans are doing their best to tilt the elections. If enough people realize that this is one that really counts, it's the usual cynicism about government, I didn't get much out of this Biden administration, or they made this mistake or that mistake, and therefore I'll stay home, that attitude will lead to autocracy. It will lead to the worst kind of dictatorship. I think the Biden administration has been reasonably good under very difficult circumstances. I think that they're far from perfect, but who is perfect? The Biden administration represents America, represents the history of this country, and it represents the future of our children living in a democracy. And, and you don't have to love everything it's done to realize that it's, it's the last great defense against what would be very much um, the kind of country that, that we've seen around the, the world historically and in our current times. It's a country led by ruthless people who will take advantage of every possible um, avenue of power to uh, gratify themselves and, and their um, their patrons at the expense of everyone else and everyone else will be frozen out and, and powerless so i think that this election it's actually elections because it's not just the presidential election or congressional elections it's at every every level of government that these elections are in fights with democracy this is a, a time in people who are really patriotic Need to reevaluate their values, need to realize that the Republican Party at this point is a party of dictatorship, need to get out to vote, need to spend their their money on on the cause of democracy, need to be soldiers for America at a time when America is in in, in dire distress.
0: Well, Dr. Alan Francis, I thank you very much for joining us here today.
1: my, my, My pleasure and with sadness, Ian, I hope someday we can talk about happier things.
0: Well, we have to. (laughs) There's too much at stake. And I thank you for joining us, Dr. Alan Francis, Professor Emeritus and former Chair of Psychiatry and Behavioural Science at Duke University. He's the author of the award-winning international bestseller, Saving Normal, and the reference work, Essentials of Psychiatric Diagnosis. And his latest book is Twilight of American Sanity, A Psychiatrist Analyzes the Age of Trump, now out in an updated paperback version. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back examining the killing of the ISIS leader in Syria and get the latest news from Ukraine from a reporter who is a leading analyst of both theatres of war. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Michael Weiss, who is News Director at New Lines Magazine. He has reported on international affairs for over 10 years, with a focus on the Middle East and Russia. He has interviewed ISIS operatives and Russian spies, published and curated a series of still-classified KGB training manuals, reported from rebel-held Syria and war-torn Ukraine, broken major stories about financial corruption and exposed the Russian intelligence services ongoing subversive subversion efforts in the United States and Europe. And he's the author of The Menace of Unreality, How Russia Weaponizes Information, Culture and Money. And he's the co-author of the New York Times bestseller, ISIS Inside the Army of Terror. Welcome to Background Briefing, Michael
2: Weiss. Pleasure to be here.
0: Well, thanks for joining us. And you're just back from Ukraine, but let's just touch on the... Uh, breaking news about the raid on the uh, ISIS leader in Syria near the Turkish border Qureshi uh, apparently blew himself up along with a lot of members of his family we keep hearing the number 1 and the number 2 are getting killed and they keep getting replaced very quickly but what kind of damage do you think this does to ISIS they just recently Try to take over a, a prison to release a lot of prisoners. In fact, they did release a lot of prisoners, mm-hmm. and they caused uh, the U.S. Uh, military had to come in, and the prison was being under the control of the Kurdish forces, but uh, the U.S. did come in, and it was a pretty bloody incident. This was a pretty high-risk raid, the one that just took place. So where do you think the, the movement stands now? Is it, is it having a resurgence?
2: Yeah, I mean, look, it's it's severely degraded. Um, it lost the expansive territory it managed to uh, acquire in 2014. Although, um, I would caveat that by saying that it it has also reached far beyond the boundaries of Syria and Iraq. Uh, maintains a heavy presence in sub-Saharan Africa, in Southeast Asia, um, but still, yes, at the level of an insurgency, not a, a quasi-state or a self-styled uh, caliphate. Um, The interesting thing about Qureshi uh, and who will the the person who will likely be his successor is ISIS has been fielding a lot of um, top level commanders from a town called Talafar, which is a key border town on the Iraqi Syrian border, largely Turkoman in its demographics. And what's kind of interesting to, to note about Qureshi and actually a guy who before him was. Um, in the running or certainly saw himself as being in the running to succeed uh, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi uh, is that they're assumed to be Turkmen in their ethnic lineage. And the, the, the trick with that is, um, according to ISIS's rather Byzantine theological definition, the leader of the organization or the caliph must be a Sunni Arab. And Qureshi means that you are descendant from the house of the Prophet Muhammad. So they have a kind of um, um, a rather strict set of guidelines for your your genealogy. So Qureshi had to prove that he wasn't Turkmen and the guy who I mentioned earlier who was who was in the running or wanted to be in the running to succeed Baghdadi also released a biography of himself demonstrating that he wasn't a Turkmen, but was indeed Sunni Arab. And yet Talafar has become. Um, One of the primary feeders into the upper echelons of ISIS because these are seen as some of the most battle hardened, uncompromising and relentless jihadists that the organization has uh, fielded into its ranks. Um, But in in a way, uh, what it shows is, you know, for an insurgency that grew into something sprawling and indeed international as beginning in 2004, which was led by a Jordanian jailbird. Abu Musab al-Zarqawi, um, ISIS's ranks have been pretty depleted, and now they're falling back on, as I say, you know, people from uh, a town that is considered to be uh, not off limits, but 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 not you know sort of the the uh, the receptacle of of the, the kind of pedigree that's necessary for taking command. Um, so in a way, they're the, the the kind of pure blood definition of who should be the leader of this organization has been somewhat diluted. And you can read that one of two ways. Um, The more positive way to read it is that they are indeed on the back foot uh, and they're struggling to uh, maintain the kind of um, Islamic supremacy, if you like, that they had uh, promulgated for close to 20 years. The other way to read it is they're resorting to um, their kind of original roots, which was more, uh, I hate to use this word in relation to a group like ISIS, but cosmopolitan in the sense that different nationalities, different ethnicities, um, a truly internationalist kind of affair. Um, but that that was when they were, frankly, it, it more dangerous because they were conducting terror attacks. I mean, you mentioned this prison break. Indeed, I mean, ISIS has always relied on trying to spring their cronies and colleagues out of the clink um, when they haven't been killed and they've been incarcerated. Prisons usually serve as one of the primary recruitment and um, Uh, sort of conversion grounds for fielding more members into the organization. So, you know, they're down, but they're not out. And they do have a history of being quite resilient. And particularly when the world takes their eye off the ball. And I mean, you know, we we have now seen that a presidential administration herald the end of the so-called forever wars. And there seems to be a dialing back of global war on terror footing. That presents a bit of an opportunity for them, um, simply because, again, they they thrive in the shadows, they thrive in darkness, and they thrive in uh, an inattention to what they're doing when they're not making it onto A1 of the New York Times every day.
0: And again, I'm speaking with Michael Weiss, who is the news director at New Lines magazine. He's reported on international affairs for over 10 years with a focus on the Middle East and Russia. He has interviewed ISIS operatives and Russian spies, published and curated a series of still classified KGB training manuals, reported from rebel-held Syria and war-torn Ukraine, broken major stories about financial corruption and exposed the Russian intelligence service's ongoing subversion efforts in the United States and Europe. And he's the author of The Menace of Unreality, How Russia Weaponizes Information, Culture and Money. And he's the co-author of the New York Times bestseller, ISIS, Inside the Army of Terror. So you're just back from Ukraine, and the U.S. is now deploying more, troops in Germany and Romania and Poland, uh, but very fractional number. The Russians have had for some time at least 100,000 troops on the eastern borders, and now there's supposed to be up to 30,000 in Belarus conducting exercises with Belarus's military, uh, and apparently there's very little defenses uh, in the north of uh, Ukraine, and there's an open highway newly paved all the way to Kiev. Mm-hmm. So what's the latest sense inside Ukraine of their vulnerability?
2: Well, so the interesting thing, I spent a week in Kiev talking to probably a dozen Ukrainian officials past and present. The sense of alarm that you're hearing in Washington and London and certainly in, in the American-led press doesn't really register in Ukraine. Um, it is true that there's Uh, similar to identical assessment of Russia's military capability held by the Ukrainian intelligence services and Ukrainian armed forces um, uh, as, uh, you know, similar, if not equal to that of of what NATO countries and the United States and Great Britain have said. The difference is uh, what is Vladimir Putin's intent? So the Ukrainians sort of see this as not a head fake or a bluff, but um, a buildup designed to put pressure, not just on Ukraine, but on the West to force concessions out of the United States with respect to NATO enlargement, the deployment of uh, mid to long range missiles in Eastern Europe, and just essentially relitigate the end of the Cold War and the last 30 years of, of Western led international security. Um, they the ukrainians believe that they understand vladimir putin a lot better than americans do and to some extent they're they're right i I interviewed a an officer in the sbu which is ukraine's domestic intelligence service who was tutored by a former kgb officer who was a station chief in africa who specialized in what the soviet and now russian security services call active measures active measures is you get a different answer depending on who you speak to, but it, it can be anything from the con- con- conducting assassinations of enemies abroad to information warfare schemes, you know, peddling disinformation and propaganda to indeed. I mean, forms of coercive diplomacy designed to make your enemy do things that is not in his interest, but, but are certainly in yours. So they see this as a kind of coordinated effort. Um, using cyber attacks, which have already occurred in Ukraine and are almost certainly attributable to the Russian services. Um, When I was there uh, two days ago, in fact, a number of Western embassies, including the Estonian, the Swedish, the Austrian, uh, the Slovakian, and I believe um, uh, another Scandinavian one, forgive me, they all fielded um, bomb threats via email. Uh, and the SBU believes that these threats came from the occupied territories of Donetsk and Russia and Belarus. Um, and so these embassies had to be emptied out of their diplomatic staff. In fact, uh, an ambassador that I met with had to meet me in a cafe. And I couldn't meet in the embassy because of it. Prior to that, there have been a number of bomb threats um, made against uh, kindergartens in villages outside of Kiev. So the Ukrainians are watching all this take place. And they realize, yes, this is, this is kind of the... Um, the toolkit that Russia is using. Uh, and and fundamentally, I mean, you know, the big question is, what's Putin's strategic objective? And the answer is regime change, right? Um, Vladimir Zelensky came to office as president, vowing to end the war, and he sort of took on a, a conciliatory posture, seemed open to some kind of grand bargain or peace uh, deal with Russia. And over time, primarily as a result of ongoing Russian belligerence attacks by pro-Russian so-called separatists and occupied Donbass against Ukrainian forces, uh, Zelensky became more and more hawkish. And so, you know, the, the, the question is, is he and is his administration prepared to cave to certain demands made by Russia? Uh, in the context of the Minsk agreement, which is the the sort of ceasefire and long-term de-escalation mechanism implemented in 2014 or 15, I forget. Uh, And part of the the Russian demand uh, with respect to Minsk is the population that is occupied by separatists in Lugansk and Donetsk should be reincorporated into the Ukrainian political system. Now, why does Putin want that? Well, these populations are seen to be Um, or at least seen by the Kremlin to be very pro-Russian. And so if they were to vote in national and regional elections, that would increase the number of constituents and indeed politicians who would essentially be pro-Russian. I mean, the Ukrainians would would argue that they're really fifth columnists because they're there to do the bidding of a hostile foreign government, not their own. So this is one thing that Zelensky has been quite um, reluctant to do. Uh, And um, a lot of Ukrainians seem to think that uh, if anything is going to kick off, uh, it'll probably kick off in the east. Um, You mentioned Belarus. Yes, this is another consideration. Um, It's sort of daggers pointed at Kiev, the capital from the north. And I was talking to people who said that, you know, within two hours time, Russian tanks could plow into Ukraine and encircle Kiev and also cut off um, land corridors, for refugees trying to move west into, um, you know, uh, Lviv and then uh, Lviv rather, and then um, uh, you know, make their way into Poland. So there, there's a panoply of options the Russians have. However, I should stress that um, Ukrainians don't really see a full-scale invasion, occupation of territory in the offing. Um, you ask them why, and you hear, well, look. Putin, he's not an idiot. He does realize that, that, that the Ukrainian people have turned in a very concerted fashion against Russia as a result of his invasion of territory in 2014. And that um, forgetting even the sort of on paper order of battle that Ukraine commands, which is markedly less than what Russia has, um, you know, what this doesn't take into account is sort of ancillary, you um, um, military capability. So you've got territorial army in Ukraine. You've got the national guard. You've got the border guard. Ukrainian police are militarized. The SBU has a kind of paramilitary capability. Uh, and then just ordinary citizens are now engaged in partisan warfare training. Uh, I spoke to a former high-ranking politician who's currently a member of the Rada, Ukrainian parliament. Who told me next week she's attending um rifle shooting school this is somebody who's never held a gun before in her life and she said i will have one in my home uh, and i will resist so there you know you're talking possibly up to a million if not more ukrainians who just automatically are going to take to the streets heavily armed to try and fight any kind of occupying force so when you factor that in they say Mr. Putin would be foolish to to attempt to, to try and seize our country in this manner. And they think that he, he's going to use other tools in his arsenal, including the ones I've mentioned already, to try and uh, achieve his strategic objective.
0: But Putin is considered to be sort of non-ideological, but his top advisors are really dangerous ideologues. Uh, I've talked to a number of high-ranking American officials who have had meetings with Nikolai Petrushev, Putin's national security advisor, head of the FSB, uh, and Narishkin, uh, head of the SVR, foreign intelligence, and the defense minister. And they have some pretty bizarre belief systems. I mean, Petrushev's belief systems are about as wacky as as Marjorie Taylor Greene's back in September. He said, uh, talking about the West, fathers and mothers are now being renamed parent number one and number two. It talks about the West's foreign values. And they want to give children the right to determine their own sex. And in some places, they've gotten to the point of legalizing marriage with animals. So with that, people like that around him, if Putin's savvy, could he be swayed by these ultra-nationalists and hawks?
2: So, first of all, I would... I would um... I would advise the following when when dealing and i know there was the new york times article about putin's war party and it was three people that were mentioned nikolai Patrushev, who's former kgb officer who was the the head of the fsb right after putin um and served in that capacity i think for almost 10 years if not 10 years um uh defense minister shoigu who's probably the second most popular politician in russia after putin and i'll come back to him in a second and uh, Bastrykin, who is the head of the um, foreign intelligence service of Russia. So the, the idea goes that these three men have got Putin's attention and the more pragmatic, quote unquote, liberal minded um, officials within Russia simply can't get to him. One of the reasons that, that, that he's impossible to reach is that since COVID Putin has been in a state of perda or isolation. Um, And so he's only talking to a a handful of people and they happen to be the so-called Siloviki or the strong men of Russia, the ones I mentioned. The problem with with what, you know, I'm not saying that that Mr. Patrushev doesn't believe in everything you say. Um, Putin himself is on record saying that the West has become degenerate and and overly liberal or or tolerant in its belief systems, Um, you know, that uh, it's allowing 16 different genders and so on and so forth. Now, I have no doubt Putin is a, a, a rather, rather culturally conservative person. Um, but I also know that as a trained KGB officer, putting out lines like this are more designed to try and um, attract audiences in the West who might believe that our society and our culture has gone too far. So, you know, it behooves him to play up the kind of ultranationalist role, you know, Russia is on, is the only real bulwark of Christian civilization, only in Russia is a man really a man and a woman still a woman and are, are, is the nuclear family unit intact. You know, in Russia we don't we don't traffic in this so-called uh, wokeness or political correctness. Um, now this this will telegraph to you know, quite a sizable and, and increasing number of Westerners that, well, maybe he's on to something, you know, maybe maybe Russia is um, the only place where, you know, common sense and traditional values uh, hold sway. I mean, Viktor Orban, the prime minister of Hungary, is, is kind of a past master at doing this himself, which is why, um, frankly, a lot of American conservatives want to model their new movement here in the United States on on urbanism. That's why CPAC is going to Budapest and, and hosting its conference there. So I, I just take with a pinch of salt, you know, the, the kind of cultural pronouncements. Um, now, that's not to say that these men don't absolutely think that um, NATO is a security threat. That's not to say that they're not trying to relitigate and revise the kind of post-1989, 1991 European security order. Um, are they ideological? Well, it uh, depends on what you mean by ideology. Uh, they're not believing Marxist Leninists anymore. Um, uh, and in fact I can show you innumerable examples uh, as to how they understand the excesses of Soviet communism and Stalinism, but what they are is and I think Siloviki really gets at the heart of this I mean these, these are these are security, chieftains, they believe in fortress Russia. And more than that, they now believe that fortress Russia internally, the situation has been consolidated. The opposition has been completely neutered. I mean, Alexei Navalny, the only real credible challenger to Putin's rule is living in a state of um, indefinite incarceration. I mean, I know he's got a a defined term, but I mean, they can hold him forever because it's Russia and and, in a a kind of contemporary gulag. Um, And, you know, I think Putin feels confident enough that people are probably not going to take to the streets or if they do not in significant enough numbers to be to cause any problems for him domestically on the political situation that he could, you know, if not, again, invade Ukraine in a large scale manner, then conduct all kinds of, as they would put it, military technical operations against Ukraine whilst holding a gun to the head of NATO and the United States saying, let's negotiate. So, I mean, their ideology is is a kind of revanchist power grab that is rooted very much in how they see uh, the tail end of the 20th century playing out, which they felt was uh, a humiliating, ignominious end to Russia's great power status, uh, which they're looking in some way, shape or form to restore. It's not the Soviet Union 2.0, but it's an attempt to sort of grab as much territory uh, and to wield as much influence as possible.
0: Well, it does seem, though, what you're describing is a kind of fortress mentality. And I don't know that in the long term what Putin offers is going to work because he offers gangster government. And a lot of what he's doing is bread and circuses, ultra nationalism, and military adventures to distract people from him and the Siloviki robbing the country blind. Um, mm-hmm. But he's, he is having an enormous amount of success in dividing America, which is what his principal strategy is. And the, and the American people are helping him because they're dividing themselves. And if Trump right. comes back, who Trump is the gift that keeps on giving as far as Putin's concerned, then this country will be divided even further. And even we even have the portent now of civil war, which Trump basically uh, is calling out his people if he's indicted to engage in the biggest demonstration in the history of America. So I see that as kind of paradoxical, that Putin's foreign policy is essentially weak, but his ability to manipulate us, in other words, he's so much better at screwing with us than he is in taking care of his own people.
2: Well, that goes without saying. And yeah, look, he has been uh, successful uh, to a large degree. The intervention in Syria... Nobody would doubt now that that was anything but almost an unmitigated success. You know, remember when that started in September 2015, the messaging out of the Obama administration was this is going to be a quagmire. This is going to be Russia's Vietnam or Russia's uh, Afghanistan 2.0. And that turned out to be false. Um, The seizure annexation of Crimea was almost flawless from a military point of view. They did this without really firing a shot. And the the, the one failure, though, was Donbass. So there's a kind of misconception, you know, there are a lot of cliches that float around now, including um, hybrid warfare, and the belief was um, hybrid warfare succeeded in taking what's known as the People's Republic of Donetsk, the People's Republic of Lugansk. In fact, that was not what fortified or or solidified those gains, but the original um, operation was to use a bunch of riffraff, uh, gangsters, warlords, former FSB and at current GRU officers to basically prop up these puppet regimes. But these puppet regimes were weak. Um, they were divided amongst and within themselves. And the Ukrainian military, uh, known as the Anti-Terrorist Organization, actually cleaned their clock. And it wasn't until Russian conventional military power rolled in that's when, frankly, MH17 happened because the Buk anti-aircraft missiles, which were operated by um, GRU officers and uh, Russian military units, that's what would what what achieve the temporary objective of, of holding these enclaves. Now, one could, could argue, and I don't pretend and I don't think anybody should pretend to, to know what's in Mr. Putin's head, but one could argue that he sees this as unfinished business, right? He needs somehow to turn... Uh, The LNR and the DNR into kind of permanent um, Russian held or Russian maintained enclaves. Now, one way he could do this, and this is something that kept coming up in Ukraine when I was there, is according to the um, uh, Stalinist style constitution of these people's republics, the rest of Donetsk and Lugansk oblasts that that is held by Ukraine is, quote, occupied territory by Ukraine right so if there's some kind of provocation in the east um you're seeing reports that the russians are planning false flag attacks that they can attribute to the ukrainian forces if there's a terrorist bombing anything um they could cite the constitutionality of these people's republics to wage an incursion and the russians would roll into the unoccupied areas of donetsk and lugansk Occupy them and claim to be, quote, peacekeeping forces. You know, an interesting thing that an SBU officer, uh, the one who was tutored by uh, an old KGB general, told me Putin is a legalist in that he he is always looking for a legal pretext or justification for his actions, however absurd and however Mm -hmm. illegitimate they may be. He needs to have something on paper to say this is why I did it. Um, so Russia cannot be seen or Russia will not be on paper, the aggressor or the invader or occupier. Russia will be in Ukraine as a defensive uh, military force. That's the only way it would work for him. Um, so yes, I mean, you know, is this going to work in the long term for Putin? I don't think so, because as I say, you know, he, he created an own goal by going to war with Ukraine. Eight years ago, he Ukraine had been a very weak and divided society, one where it was not very difficult to see pro-Russian kleptocrats and sort of gangsters essentially ascend to the highest levels of power, including the presidency. Now, well, Ukraine certainly has corruption and it's got a lot of political problems, but I've been going there almost every year, if not twice a year since 2014. And each time I go, the the sense of peoplehood, and nationhood um, seems more profound. Uh, There's absolutely been an evolution in the way Ukrainians see themselves and their destiny and their history. Um, And this is not going to be a cakewalk for him. Um, I mean, I I keep hearing Putin will choke on Ukraine. Now, you know, is that bravado? Is that a false sense of optimism by the Ukrainian people? Uh, They certainly don't seem to think so.
0: Well, indeed, the propaganda that is coming out of Moscow is pretty tiresome in terms of trying to label them all as Nazis and the leadership as being Hitlers. I mean, well, yeah. it's a, it's a hell
2: of a Nazi regime with a Jewish president, isn't it? I was
0: about to say, a Jewish president, whose primary language is Russian, his second language is Ukrainian. But you mentioned the, the gangsters that he put in power, you know, like Yanukovych, who, of course, Paul Manafort was his uh, PR man. But also, when he seized Crimea and put gangsters in charge, yep. would he would he then try to move though down and link up Ukraine with the Donbass along and take Maripol and head south? Because the Ukrainians have cut off water supplies to Crimea. Would that be the most likely military action? if he's going to do a limited war.
2: and not most likely, but it's certainly on the table. I mean, that's one of the scenarios I've, I've, I've heard being war gamed at the moment. Um, you wouldn't even need to mount a land incursion to really damage Ukraine, you could do a naval blockade and cut off Ukraine's um, maritime commerce, which is a very large percentage of their GDP. Um, but yeah, you know, the, the so called land bridge or land corridor along the southeast uh, implementing some form of the um, the so-called uh, Novorossiya um, plan to kind of create a new Russian imperium. Uh, all of these things have been suggested. Um, I spoke to uh, General Breedlove, the former Supreme Allied Commander of NATO, who happened to be in Kiev while I was there. Um, and he said, uh, you know, if the Russians started to push along the southeastern corridor, he envisages that Mr. Putin would stop at some point because he'd be fearful that um, NATO aircraft would start bombing. Um, it would be a kind of replay of the Balkans. And I said, you think Putin thinks NATO would go to war with Russia over Ukraine? He said, oh, absolutely. It wasn't Mr. Breedlove or General Breedlove advocating that they do that, but he, he seems to think that Putin is so conspiratorial and paranoid that, that he'd be worried about kind of playing his hand a little too well. Um, so look, I mean, again, I. I, I keep hearing everything from full-scale occupation, meaning all of Ukraine taken by Russian forces, to, you know, this invasion from the north from Belarus into Kyiv or encirclement of Kyiv to basically it just kicking off again in, in Donbass and confining itself to the east. I mean, all of these things are possible, uh, and they're all plausible to some extent. But, you know, Ukrainians seem to be unworried i mean I, you know the life was get, carrying on in Kyiv. people were out at restaurants and bars nobody was in a state of panic the Zelensky government has actually made it a point of policy not to try to sow panic uh, because their economy which is already doing quite poorly they don't want to see going to the toilet um and the level of confidence self-confidence is is pretty profound um and again i you know uh, i don't know if if These are famous last words that we'll all be looking back in six weeks or six months and saying, you know, Ukraine should have prepared better and should have mobilized forces. Um, But, you know, they they will tell you we've been at war with Russia for eight years. We've been dealing with a panoply of provocations, intelligence operations, um, as Putin would call it, military technical elements. Uh, These never stop, you know, Um, so. For us, this isn't really—we're in perpetual war footing. We don't need to, to be told that something bad is going to happen or is imminent or even inevitable. I mean, they just feel like this this is lived experience for almost a decade.
0: So just in closing, though, do you think at the end of the day is a, is a an exit here? Because there's some concern that Putin's dug a hole for himself. It's going to be difficult for him to back down and save face. But the Minsk framework is even though it's very one-sided, and the Ukrainians were incredibly weak when they signed that deal, and they don't want to implement a lot of it. Any anyway, rate, is that an exit strategy? Do you think? Because obviously nobody wants to see war, and and the Ukrainian people will suffer immensely, and Putin might have backlash from the body bags as well. You never know.
2: Well, I mean, you know, again, there's not really uh, any kind of popular will to implement mints from the Ukrainian side, meaning reincorporate, you know, these kind of Somalia-esque enclaves that have been occupied by a hostile foreign power into the Ukraine's political system. I mean, you know, sort of the, the, the kind of irony of this situation is, Putin is seen to have done the Ukrainians a favor by rallying Ukrainians, essentially, in, as I said before, into in giving them a new sense of peoplehood and, and nationhood. But also in another way, and this is not something Ukrainians like to talk about publicly, but kind of so voce, they will concede. You know, Crimea was largely an ethnic Russian peninsula um, with a lot of pro-Russian sentiment. And the parts of the Donbass that have been occupied, similarly so. Um, so I kept asking the question, well, if you guys don't want these territories reincorporate into your political system? Do we even want them reincorporated into your kind of the definition of your sovereign nationhood? I mean, are are you not better off without them? I mean, do you not see these areas as kind of overrun with fifth columnists? And, you know, I asked one parliamentarian this question and a smile crept across his face. He said, we will not stop until we regain all of our territory. I said, yeah. But he then followed up by telling me If the LNR and DNR were brought in, uh, and if people in these areas were allowed to vote again, he foresees um, an uptick in the number of pro Russian parliamentarians that would be in the Rada. Right now, he estimates there are about 40. He thinks that after elections were held with LNR and DNR participation, there would be something like 73, which is a sufficiently good number for a spoiler element in terms of. Getting Ukraine along on some of the development issues it's been trying to do for the last several years. So, yeah, I mean, in a way, if Putin can achieve through politics uh, what he would otherwise have to only be able to, or he would only be able to achieve by military means, he's absolutely going to do that. I mean, this is the kind of Georgia scenario where, you know, you invade, you blow some stuff up, and then you pause and you wait to see what the ramifications are in the capital. So if he feels like um a, a limited incursion or some kind of attack or some kind of coordinated series of attacks will force Zelensky either into conceding or resigning or holding early elections he will have achieved his goal but the ukrainians are aware of this you see this is not taking them by surprise unlike crimea and unlike you know in 2008 the the russo-georgian war um which people didn't see coming and was really Saakashvili taking the bait and falling into a trap Ukrainians are very well prepared for all kinds of scenarios and, and attempts to, to, to get them to do that, which they would otherwise not want to do. And I think that's why, frankly, they're A, playing it calm and B, resisting pressure. And by the way, pressure I'm hearing is not just coming from Moscow. It's also coming from the Biden administration. Jake Sullivan, John Finer are seen as being the ones to advocate that if only Kiev kind of bends the knee a little bit, this problem will go away. Uh, and the Ukrainians have a very eloquent two-word response to that.
0: <laughs> I was about to bring up that, that the pressure on them is also coming from the West. Mm-hmm. So I thank you for joining us for this conversation. Uh, you've cu- we've covered a lot of ground. And I'm very grateful. Sure, anytime. And again, I've been speaking with Michael Weiss who is a news director at New Lines magazine. He has reported on international affairs for over 10 years with a focus on the Middle East and Russia, and he's interviewed ISIS operatives and Russian spies, published and curated a series of still-classified KGB training manuals, reported from rebel-held Syria and war-torn Ukraine, broken major stories about financial corruption and exposed the Russian intelligence service's ongoing subversion efforts in the United States and Europe. And he's the author of The Menace of Unreality, How Russia Weaponizes Information, Culture and Money. And he's the co-author of the New York Times bestseller ISIS, Inside the Army of Terror. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again on Sunday with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that
3: lived next door in took the kids to the park and disappeared.